0: You guys love this worship team? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Now here's the the amazing thing. We're in in a study of the book of Acts where we are charting the, the progress of the good news of God's radical love through the church and through the power of the Holy Spirit. The same God who created the world through his mighty spirit is recreating it through his Holy Spirit. So we're going to be checking out some things today from Acts chapter 10, if you want to get there in your Bibles. Seat Bibles, it's page 661. But we're, we're checking out things here that are history, they happen to real people, and yet the truth of them are ongoing and timeless. So that means that the things that we draw from this are for us right now, like in really, really important ways. So let's begin reading. Chapter 10 and verse 1. We'll read the first eight verses. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor, prayed regularly to God, One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? he asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them, uh, yeah, and he told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Okay, now this text that we're looking at today, in chapters ten and eleven, is really divided into three parts. We have an interaction here that we just read between God and Cornelius. In a few moments, we're going to read the next section, which is about an interaction that God has with the Apostle Peter. And the third section is about God and his disciples, some interactions that the disciples have kind of assimilating what it is that God has revealed. Now, we're beginning here with God and Cornelius. And I want you to notice a few things right here about what God is like. So behind this whole great story of good news is this incredible God of love and power. And what I want you to see here is that God, we know that he is powerful. He's the one that's made the world and everything in it. But did you know that God is not only powerful, he's also personal. What we get from this account is that God, out of the many billions of people on the planet, sees, hears, is a witness to the daily life of one man named Cornelius. Isn't that incredible? So when you zoom out for a second and you think, what is God like? Well, he's powerful, but he's also personal. It's pretty, it's pretty startling to think that this week there was, a third, there was a witness, kind of a third hand in all of your interactions. God himself, seeing, hearing, responding, not just to the many, but to the one. We also see in this interaction with Cornelius that God cares about people, yes, but he cares about all people, not just proponents. See, we're told in the story that Cornelius, he was devout in his own way, but he's a Roman, right? He's a, he's a centurion, Now, in the Jewish mind, like certainly for Peter, we're going to see this in a second, Cornelius represents what we might call the other, the the person outside God's family, outside the church, we might think of it that way. And yet we see here that God cares about Cornelius. He cares about his household. He cares about the people connected to Cornelius in the town of Caesarea. So God is seeing these things, but he's also caring about this man, but he's also caring about this man's house. Now, Romans, again, were not just the other. To someone like Peter that we're going to meet in a second, here in a personal way, someone like Cornelius was the enemy. He was the oppressor. He was the one who was an agent of putting the thumb on and holding back the people of God. He would have, he would have had antipathy or hatred, strong, strong feelings about Cornelius. And if not strong feelings, certainly maybe no feelings at all. He, he was simply not on the radar screen for Peter in terms of his mission, terms of his thoughts, those kinds of things, yet God has Cornelius very much in view. Thirdly, I think it's just kind of funny to note that God has a sense of humor because we're told in this this text that Cornelius has this vision and it ends with God sending Cornelius to Peter. Now, Peter was an apostle, right? One of Jesus' disciples, now an apostle Apostle actually means the sent one, right? They were being sent as apostles to spread God's love around the world. And here in this story, we have a Roman centurion in his household being sent to the sent one, Okay, So this is a joke, right? But it's also like pre-shadowing, right, of what it is that God's doing because God is using an enemy, essentially, to speak to Peter, Now, let's begin reading now in verse 9, where we pick up the second part of the story. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and it was time for lunch. He was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheep was suddenly pulled up. Now, in this account, we get a second vignette. God and Peter. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about Peter. Peter, as a Jewish first century devout follower in Judaism was steeped in a particular worldview. And we get some glimpses of it even in the little account that we read. Um, He begins to say, hey, I don't eat certain things that you're telling me to eat. So he was steeped in a worldview. Now, here's the thing. So are you. So am I. Now, worldview is more than what you see or what you believe. A worldview is actually the lens through which you see. Sometimes we're conscious of our beliefs, but we're not conscious that the beliefs that we have or the way that we have been formed or brought up, come to believe things, becomes a sort of lens through which we interpret everything else. Peter thought, as a part of this worldview, that God's family was identified, was marked out by what you did and who you did it with. So basically, the reason that certain dietary laws were so important to the Jews was not just a purification sort of like regimen. It was also an identity regimen. In other words, the way that you knew that you belonged to the people of God was that your holiness, your separateness, that's what holy means, separate, your holiness was marked out by things that were visible. So you obviously went to the temple, but you also, you also had a very strict code of what you ate and what you didn't eat. The Jews began to associate that practice of being separate with righteousness itself. So the logic sort of went like this. What made you impure was eating something impure. And then further, the logic extended to this. like If you're a kind of person who eats that, and I get next to you, you contaminate me. Right? So not only what I don't eat is impure, but even who I hang out with. So I'm going to be holy. Right? By being separate from you. And so Peter thought that this is what marked out righteousness or holiness. Peter confused, really, as we'll see in this account, his cultural beliefs with God, with God's beliefs. So he had intertwined some things that were true, but he had mixed them along with all the other people who had raised him and reinforced it and the system that surrounded it with things that were actually intertwined with ethnic identity, political identity, social identity, being religious. These things were so intertwined, in fact, That They were almost impossible for Peter to separate in real time. Do you see his tension? Like God comes and gives him this vision, and all this stuff that's impure comes down on a sheet, and then God says, eat it. He's like, whoa. Like, I don't even know how to process that. Right? I don't even know how to think about that because what I believe to be righteousness is intertwined with so many things here that it's blowing my mind. Peter felt that this way of seeing the world, that this way of defining righteousness, actually justified putting those moral principles ahead of the welfare of other people, of unrighteous people, in fact. So, if you see the accounts in the New Testament that kind of carried over into the first part of the church... because they thought of holiness as communal and communal as separateness from anything impure, God's now moving with his love towards all these people who are outside that. And Peter's waking up every morning, even as an apostle, and here's the bottom line, he doesn't care about Cornelius. In fact, if Cornelius, Cornelius, the burden of Cornelius probably isn't on his heart at all, And in fact, when it starts to get put onto his heart, he goes, ooh. Right? So he felt that righteousness, this way of looking at the world, justified like principles over people. Peter, in fact, was so sure about this that if you look at the text here, God says, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says what? No. Surely not. Peter was so convinced that he was right that he was willing to argue with God. Pretty convinced. Now, here's the question that I want to ask and answer in the remaining part of this, hopefully. What can be done for a person? What can be done for us? When what you think is right is actually what's wrong. Do you know that the biggest threat to learning anything more than what you believe right now is actually what you already believe? It's what you already know. Because what you already believe and are convinced that you're right about becomes the lens through which you see everything else. It's called confirmation bias. It's been studied established like all of our brains work like this turns out that our brain does not like uncertainty like we would rather we'd rather be wrong but feel right than discover that we're actually wrong because being in that state of not knowing the answer it creates such incredible dissonance or just you might just experience it as really unpleasant that your brain is wired to avoid it. And so confirmation bias basically says is that every new piece of information or every memory that we recall from the past, we interpret through what it is that we already believe. Okay, so what can be done for a person when, when they think what's right, that thinking what's right is actually what's wrong? Because before we can learn anything, we have to unlearn. And what we're gonna read in the next verses is an ancient, but as modern, contemporary, a lesson in the way that we change our minds, the way that God changes our minds, as we can possibly imagine. Because thank God for the Holy Spirit. Thank God for a wisdom that is not locked into our biases. Thank God for a heart that continues to move us, but also to reach towards the whole world, even when the people of God get locked into a narrower version of what God actually has in mind. So let's read in verses 17 through 47, and we'll see how this works. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Verse 17. Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Now get up, go downstairs. Go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. Now, time out for a second. Can you feel the tension inside of Peter? He's perplexed. He's wondering what in the world's going on here. Now, a couple of Romans show up at his door and say, we'd like you to come for a house visit. Okay? God's God's actually saying, listen, Peter, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Actually, go. Open your mind. Go with them. So Peter, verse 21, went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? They said, We were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is devout and God-fearing, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that you can hear your message so he can hear your message so Peter invited the men to stay for the night the next day he went with them accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa we read later that it's at least six of them so Peter's got his posse they arrived in Caesarea the following day Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends so poor Peter right He's going to meet a guy. He shows up and he's got the whole family. All right? Now, look what gets worse for him. As Peter entered the home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshiped him. Peter's like, No, like, stand up. I'm just a human being, just like you. So they talked together, went inside, and there were more. This so distresses Peter that he just has to blurt out You guys know that I'm not supposed to be doing this, right? Verse 28. Peter told them, you know, I'm not, you know it's against our law for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to even associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. You might want to underline that. God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you were sent. Tell me why you sent for me. Cornelius replied, Four days ago I was praying in my house. About the same time, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa, and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. Ugh. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly now that God shows no. Favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. If you want to know, if you want a sentence definition of the gospel, that would be another good verse to underline. You know what happened throughout Judea? You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us, whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. Now, there are a lot of miracles in the story, right? A bunch of visions, there's angels. I want to suggest to you that the greatest miracle in the story is not that. God sent these visions, but that the power of the Holy Spirit is strong enough to get a full-grown man to change his mind. Amen? Now let me ask you a question. What's involved in changing your mind? I mean, what's, what's it like to actually walk in the path of that kind of change. To move from a closed person to an open one. To actually walk not according to your principles, but by the Holy Spirit. Well, it's not pretty. It starts with getting perplexed. It starts with disorientation. The scripture tells us and gives us many adjectives to describe the consternation, the questions, the doubt that entered Peter's life with this new experience. Can you relate? See, over time in life, in your faith journey, you're going to come to junctures, to experiences with people, and to things, and to, and to all kinds of events in your life that will disrupt the formula that you've put together that you would call even your faith. And here's the thing. You do not grow in faith without disorientation, without doubt, without questions. The idea that faith looks like simply locking your beliefs down and putting them under a key, like in a safe, and becoming more rigid less adaptive, and ultimately fighting people in the name of your principles is not walking by the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is unfortunately what happened to Peter. So the first thing that had to happen for him to learn something new is that he had to unlearn some things that he dearly believed. That process involved questions and doubt. I'm going to come back to this in a second. But oftentimes disorientation in doubt, which by the way, one, if you look at the Psalms, which is the prayer language of the people of God over centuries, one third of it is a person in orientation, like rejoicing in the wellness of what they believe. One third is, a, is, is David or the psalmist crying out with disorientation. And one third of it is giving reflection on new orientation, reorientation. So this is, this is the... So you cut, if you, in your faith formula, if you have no room for doubt, if you have no room for disorientation, if you're no longer asking questions, all that tells me is that your faith has stopped growing. Right? Now, thirdly, Peter went through a process ordained by God of discovery. Go with them. You're going to have to leave The practices and the context that have reinforced what you believe now in order to open to something new. There's no other way. You can't learn this on a blackboard. Like, you actually have to go talk to the people. You have to rub shoulders. You have to listen to their perspectives. You have to have a conversation. You have to go to their house. Okay? And so off Peter goes to have a new experience that was just as perplexing and just as disorienting. It is against my laws for me to even be here. Many people gathered in this living room, (laughs) right? What are you seeking? Why have you sent for me? What are your questions? it required Peter to open to some context and to some associations and to some conversations that were outside the realm of what he called his faith. And then we see in this text that as the Holy Spirit begins to work and fall in ways that he and his friends thought were not even possible, that God didn't even care, he did not even do this, but here he is doing it, Then he has to reflect on his theology, right? He has to let his experience inform, his new experience inform his past beliefs. Isn't that that what he's doing here in verse 4? I now realize, whoops, as I look back at my sacred scriptures, I realize, oh, from the beginning, God's intention was to bless the whole world. How did we ever come to this view of faith that cut most of the world out, right? Right? And so he, he has this new recognition. Now, here's the, here's the thing I want to say to you. God calls us in our faith journey to grow, not just think we know. And our doubts and questions are a critical part of the spiritual journey. Now, here, here I want to speak, just put a parenthesis in this and speak personally to a couple people in here. I don't know who you are, but I know you're in here. You've hit junctures in your faith and in your life experience where you carry doubt. You have questions. You're wondering if certain things are true in the way that you've come to know them. And you would never breathe a word of it in church. But here's the thing. Doubt is part of faith. The process is orientation, disorientation, Reorientation. And if I'm talking to you, there's a wonderful little book, this deserves its own talk, but it's called No Doubt by John Artberg. It's a plan words, do you get it? No doubt. No, anyways. So, check it out. Check it out. Now, as part of this reflection, Peter had to go back and tell his church. so it's like hey you're not going to believe what happened last week all right so this is this is that's this conversation so now we're looking at God and the disciples okay chapter 11 soon the news reached the apostles and the other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God but when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem the Jewish believers criticized him saying we heard you entered the home of of Gentiles, and you even ate with them. This was, not a happy, this was not a happy small group. Okay? so Because basically, now the faith community is going, you went outside the lines. So now they have to process this together. Okay? You want to read it real quick? Okay. We're going to. All right. So, then Peter told them exactly what had happened. I was in the town of Joppa, he said, and while I was praying, I went into a trance. And I saw a vision. I'm not sure that would go over in my small group, by the way. Anyways, but he did. Okay, so I I went into a trance and I saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky and it came right down onto me. And when I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds, and I heard a voice say, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I replied. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet, and all it contained was pulled back up to heaven. Just then three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived to the house where we were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers here accompanied me, and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us He told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home, and I told him, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words. See, this is experience informing theology. Then I thought of the Lord's words. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When the others heard this, they stopped objecting. They began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and of receiving eternal life. Now here's the question that we all just have to wrestle with. And I want to say this. I didn't in the first service. I don't actually have any one issue in mind, okay? There's nothing preloaded on this. Just trying to do my job here, okay, on the text. Here's the question. Who am I to stand in God's way? Who are you to stand in God's way? Who are we to stand in God's way? It's interesting that the word repent actually means to change your mind. Isn't that interesting? And what the church is doing here in chapter 11 is that they are corporately repenting because they're changing their mind, right? They're changing their mind about things that they had believed since they were this high. See, to walk with the Holy Spirit Is much more difficult. (laughs) It's wonderful. But like if God's in charge, guess what that means? I'm constantly needing to change my mind. Right? I'm having to change my mind constantly to keep in step, the scripture tells us, with the spirit. And sometimes the spirit leads in ways that absolutely deconstruct my culture, my politics, my economic theories, my favorite news channel, my political party, whatever it is. God is deconstructing us. He's recreating us, in fact, to have his heart to see through that lens the world and other people, not in ways that are different. Okay? And so to repent is to continually change our minds. We stand in God's way when we make our principles more important than people. Our principles are important. But that was what Peter did, right? He had somehow constructed the whole story in a way that had actually excluded the, whole, the, the people that the whole story was for, right? Has that ever happened in your faith journey? Is it happening now? We stand in God's way when we focus on, more on God's love for us, which is wonderful, than we do on God's love for others. Like when whole groups of people, their welfare just aren't on our radar. We don't care. In fact, we might not even like them. We stand in God's way when we refuse to change our mind. So here's the question that we've been asking through this series, and I just offer it to you, not as a, this is a question I'm asking myself. Okay, I'm in it with you but in this context. Holy Spirit, what do you want to do in me today? What do you want to do in me? Would you ask that question in the seat where you are right now and just in prayer for 15 seconds and then we will close our service. God, we thank you for your radical, never-ending love and patience, both with people outside and both with people inside. Thank you that the journey of faith is dynamic. God, where we need to change our mind, where we need to open our hearts, Lord, only your Holy Spirit can give us the miracle of true repentance. And so we ask you for it personally and corporately. May we be a people who embody both the love that you have for us and the love that you have for our neighbors. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.